Gothic architecture is known for its pointed arches. Unlike the round arches, like for instance classical Roman aqueducts and stuff like that, there you have semicircular arches. But Gothic arches are steeper, pointier. The Gothic stuff of the late Middle Ages, the, you know, a lot of cathedrals and stuff from that era, you see those arches everywhere. There are the windows, the doorways, everything has this characteristic pointy thing. And the Gothic pointed arch consists of two circular arcs. You can make it like this. First you start with a rectangle, a plain window or door, a boring old rectangle. And now let's spice it up, Gothic style. Well, you take out your compass, you put it along the top side of the rectangle, you draw two circular arcs going up above the rectangle. You use the top side of the rectangle as the radius and the, the two endpoints as the midpoints of the two arcs that you're drawing. Then the, those two arcs going up above the rectangle make a pointed extension of the rectangle. And there you go, a Gothic window. And so if you have a Euclid in fresh memory, you will recognize at once that that's precisely the type of constructions involved in proposition one of the elements, the very beginning of the elements. Is this a coincidence that this thing occurs both in Gothic architecture and in the very first figure of Euclid's elements? In my opinion, I don't think so. It's not likely to be a coincidence, is it? The Gothic style of architecture arose in Europe in the early 12th century within just like a decade or two from the very first Latin translation of Euclid's elements. So if that's not cause and effect, then it is an incredible coincidence. It's likely that these architects drew inspiration from the newly rediscovered text of Euclid's elements, which had been forgotten in Western Europe for hundreds of years at that point. There's little direct documentation that this is what happened. However, let me quote here from Otto von Simpson's book, The Gothic Cathedral. He writes as follows. At least one literary document survives that explains the use of geometry in Gothic architecture. The minutes of an architectural conference held in 1391 in Milan. The question debated in, at Milan is not whether the cathedral is to be built according to a geometrical formula, but merely whether the figure to be used is to be the square or the equilateral triangle. The minutes of one particularly stormy session relate an angry dispute between the French expert Jean Mignot and the Italians. Overruled by them on a technical issue, Mignot remarks bitterly that his opponents have set aside the rules of geometry by alleging science to be one thing and art another. Art, however, he concludes, is nothing without science. Ars sinis gientia nihil est. This argument was considered unassailable, even by Mignot's opponents. They hasten to affirm that they are in complete agreement as regards this theoretical point, and have nothing but contempt for an architect who presumes to ignore the dictates of geometry. So the geometrical ethos was very strong indeed. This uh, hard-line view probably softened a bit over time. Renaissance art, you might say, is more expressive, emotive, more alive than this rigid late medieval stuff. So that that is, if we fast forward 200 years from the Gothic conferences about how art is nothing without geometry, then you get a little more loosening. Uh, at the time, you have people like Michelangelo who said, the painter should have compasses in his eyes, not in his hands. I suppose that means that art should go a little more by feeling or intuition and not be completely dictated by mathematics. Still, though, you still have compasses in your eyes. 
is still a very significant role for, for geometry, it seems. It's also revealing, perhaps, that Michelangelo thought it was important to point this out at all. I guess there were a lot of artists with compasses in their hands running around back then. Why else would Michelangelo feel the need to criticize that practice? In fact, geometry proved useful to art again in new ways in the Renaissance. At this time, artists discovered the geometrical principles of perspective, or perhaps rediscovered. Accurate representation of depth in a painting follows simple geometrical principles. The key construction is that of a tiled floor, like a, a chessboard type pattern of floor tiles that are seen in perspective. So the tiles that are further away, they appear smaller in the picture, in the painting. There are a lot of tiled floors in Renaissance art because they are a great way of conveying a sense of depth. And here's how you draw a tiled floor. First you draw two horizontal lines. One is where the floor starts and the uh, one is the horizon, somewhere in, uh, much higher up in the picture. So you divide the floor into many equal pieces, which represent the size of the tile. And then you connect all of those points, equally spaced points on the bottom line, to a fixed point on the horizon. This is because uh, all of them go to the same point, because all the parallel rows of the floor will appear to converge in a single point, just as uh, whenever you are looking at parallel lines that go off into the distance, like railroad tracks, for example, they always appear to meet at the horizon, and that's why you connect all of these points to the same point on the horizon, the vanishing point. So next, you draw a second horizontal line representing the the other edge of the front row of the floor tiles. So now, once you've done this, next comes the real magic step, which is draw the diagonal of the first tile and extend that line. Now where this line cuts the other lines that you have already drawn, the lines that are going to the vanishing point on the horizon, is now intersected by this diagonal line. Uh, all those intersection points are corners of other tiles. And this is because of the, the geometrical principles that a straight line, no matter how you look at it from whatever angle, will always still be a straight line. A lot of stuff looks funny in perspective. Big things can look small, parallel lines appear to meet, Perfectly round things appear to be oval, and so on. Perspective distorts shapes in all kinds of ways. But straight lines remain straight lines. This is an invariant of all of this, all of these transformations. And that is why the diagonal of the first floor tile is also the diagonal of successive tiles. Because the diagonal of the tiles make a straight line in the real world, they must also make a straight line in the picture. So... It's a very powerful principle because once you have the, all the corner points of successive rows of tiles, you can use that to recreate the, the rest of the floor. Draw it for yourself. You know, that's uh, fun to do and it looks great. It creates a photorealistic sense of depth. No wonder so many artists chose to set their scenes in locales that just happen to have lots of tile floors everywhere in this, in this era in the Renaissance. In fact, the, the insight involved here is much deeper than just the tile floors. It's not really about the floors. It's about the correct perspective representation of depth and size more generally. Even if you don't want a tile floor in your finished picture, 
it's still very useful to draw one, say in pencil, for, so to speak, on your canvas as a reference grid. You can use the, these tiles as a guide to transfer and compare sizes at different depths and distances. The, then later, you can paint over it with some trees or whatever. Nobody can see this grid anymore. You, you used it behind the scenes to get the proportions right. The Greeks uh, probably already knew about all this stuff. Basically, no paintings from Greek antiquity have been preserved. We know they were skilled artists. One guy said to have painted grapes so realistically that a bird came and pecked at it. Well, whatever, that's all. We, are, we, are, we only have these stories left and we don't have the paintings themselves. They've been destroyed uh, through time, but well, what can you do? Anyway, the Greeks probably knew the geometrical principles of perspective. They used it to create scenes for the theater, for instance, according to uh, a testimony from uh, uh, Vitruvius, a Roman author, later wrote... Uh, by this deception, a faithful representation of the appearance of buildings might be given in a painted scene, so that, though all is drawn in on a vertical, flat facade, some parts may be seen to be withdrawing into the background and others to be standing out in front. So you can create, uh, on, a, on a stage during a play, you can have this backdrop, you know, just like... Uh, cool CGI stuff of today. It seems that the Greeks were already uh, masters of that. It wasn't just a party trick, though, to the Greeks. It also had philosophical implications. You know, the philosophical minded Greeks always find uh, some epistemological angle on everything, don't they? And so also on this issue to Plato. These perspective art raised profound epistemological conundrums. He was concerned that Optical illusion painting had, as he says, powers that are little short of magical because they exploit this weakness in our nature. They bypass the rational part of the soul. The solution to this problem, as Plato saw it, was a mathematical education. Since, as he said, sense perception seems to produce no sound results in this with regard to these illusory paintings, Therefore, it makes all the difference whether someone is a geometer or not. The power of appearance often makes us wander all over the place in confusion, often changing our minds about the same thing and regretting our actions and choices with respect to things large and small. The art of measurement, by contrast, would make the appearances lose their power and give us peace of mind firmly rooted in the truth. Those are all Plato's words over there. It's a rousing case for mathematics. But uh, Plato, uh, perhaps he drew his conclusions a step too far, you might say. He's rejecting categorically the role of observational data in science altogether. Here's what he says. There is no knowledge of sensible things, whether by gaping upward or squinting downward. So science must be based on the naturally intelligent part of the soul, not observation. For instance... Let's study astronomy by means of problems, as we do in geometry, and leave the things in the sky alone. This is Plato's proclamation. With those kinds of attitudes, you might say it's no wonder that the Greeks excelled more in mathematics than in the sciences. But, indeed, the, this threat of optical illusions, it is a legitimate argument in Plato's defense. When the principles of perspective were rediscovered in Renaissance Italy, they were again at the heart of scientific developments, but this time on the side of empirical science. 
Galileo looked at the moon through a telescope and he concluded that it had mountains and craters. Of course, the image that one sees through a telescope is flat. Mountains and craters are revealed by the shadows that they cast, how light hits the surface of the moon and interacts. So that's not necessarily very easy to see. It's not necessarily a very evident conclusion. Some scholars have argued that the artistic tradition which has, with its extensive study or perspective of sh and shadows, was a necessary uh, training for the eye to be able to correctly interpret the, the telescope data. So, is it a coincidence that Galileo, the telescopic astronomer, came from the same land as the great Italian Renaissance painters? Galileo was born and raised in Tuscany, right where so many of these masters had worked. Maybe only someone in immersed in that culture had the right eyes to interpret the heavens. They were already experts in the representation of light and shadow and depth and contrast on flat surfaces, which is precisely what you do, a skill that you need to do telescopic astronomy. It's a far-fetched theory, in my opinion, but it makes for a nice story anyway. Well... Uh, I would like now to put aside this art stuff and I would like to look at another theme in how mathematics was received in the early modern world, especially with respect to the status of mathematics in relation to other fields. Geometry carried a certain authority and that led to many tensions. Let's jump right into the action with an eyewitness report from 1703. I quote, there has been much canvassing and intrigue made use of, as if the fate of the kingdom depended on it. On the evil Newton's election as president of the Royal Society, matters had deteriorated to such an extent that various fellows could be restrained only with difficulty from a public exchange of blows, or in one case, the drawing of swords. So, yikes, uh, that's quite serious business. And so what was this conflict then on which the fate of the kingdom depended? It was a battle between the mathematical and the non-mathematical sciences within the Royal Society in London. You had the philomaths who identified with Newton. They thought the non-mathematical sciences were hardly science at all. Botany, geology, stuff like that. They just collected data, they wrote down obvious things... There's no real thinking involved, no advanced theoretical progress, no genius. Here's how they put it when they made the case that Isaac Newton, the great mathematician, ought to be the president of the society to ensure its intellectual quality. Uh, quote, That great man, Newton, was sensible that something more than knowing the name, the shape, and obvious qualities of an insect, a pebble, a plant, or a shell was requisite to form a philosopher, even of the lowest rank much more to qualify one to sit at the head of so great and learned a body. So, uh, science was divided into two camps. You have mathematical geniuses like Newton, and then you have people who just know the names of a bunch of insects. So, as you can imagine, the other side saw it rather differently. They identified with Francis Bacon, who had complained about, as he said, the daintiness and pride of mathematicians, who will needs have this science almost domineer over physic. For it has come to pass, I know not how, that mathematics and logic, which ought to be the handmaids of physics, nevertheless presume on the strength of the certainty which they possess to exercise dominion over it. So, that's Francis Bacon's diagnosis, that the mathematicians have an inflated ego, as it were. 
they're so full of themselves that they think they have the right to tell others how to think. And here's how this point was made in 1700. I quote a contemporary account about that. The world is become most immoderately fond of mathematical arguments, looking upon everything as trivial that bears no relation to the compass, and establishing the most distant part of humane knowledge, all speculations, whether physical, logical, ethical, political, or any other, upon the particular results of number and magnitude. In any other commonwealth but that of learning, such attempt towards an absolute monarchy would quickly meet opposition. It may be a kind of treason, perhaps, to intimate thus much. But who can any longer forbear when he sees the most noble and most useful portions of philosophy lie fallow and deserted for opportunities of learning how to prove the whole bigger than the part? So that's the uh, case against mathematics in 1700. Mathematics uh, corrupts mind and soul by fostering delusions of grandeur and by focusing on obscure technical questions instead of on what is really important. Roger Asham made a similar point in 1570. Some wits, moderate enough by nature, be many times marred by overmuch study of and use of some sciences, namely arithmetic and geometry. These sciences sharpen men's wits overmuch. Mark all mathematical heads, which be holy and only bent to serve those sciences, how solitary they be themselves, how unapt to serve in the world. So, meanwhile, the mathematicians, for their part, thought that an exclusive focus on the merely practical is anti-intellectual, it's beneath a true thinker. Other scientists may use basic mathematics, but the real accomplishment is to understand it, or to develop it further. Mathematician William Autred, he put it like this, the true way of art is not by instruments, but by demonstration. It is a preposterous course of vulgar teachers to begin with instruments and not with the sciences, and so to make their schoolers only doers of tricks and, as it were, jugglers. It's very relatable for a modern mathematics teacher, these words. Students, uh, they are so dependent on calculators that they are only doers of tricks, as William Autred put it. That's what you get when mathematics is not respected as an end in itself, but only as a tool for what is practically useful. So this conflict has been around for many centuries. There's an interesting twist, though, to this story. So part of what these opponents of mathematics were attacking was the pedantic focus on theoretical subtleties. As we heard in these quotes, the whole is greater than the part. People are sort of mocking mathematicians for paying attention to that kind of uh, minutia or uh, sitting around nitpicking about stuff like that. So instead of tackling real problems, the mathematicians, they sit around and muse about nuances of definitions or postulates that only matter for very subtle foundational debates, not for actual problem solving. It's a valid critique, you might say, after reading Euclid with all his foundational pedantry. You can understand where these people are coming from. Here's the twist, though. Many mathematicians, they didn't like that stuff either, the pedantic stuff. Many mathematicians in the 17th century felt that Greek geometrical style was indeed too formal and they recognized the value of the Euclidean style for, for foundational investigation. However, they felt that creative mathematics must be more free, more loose, not like the Euclid. And here's how uh, Clairaut put it in the, in the 18th century. Euclid's geometry had to convince stubborn sophists who prided themselves on refusing to believe the most evident truths. It was necessary then that geometry have 
the help of forms of reasonings to shut the idiots up. But times have changed. All reasoning which applied to that which good sense knows in advance is a pure loss and serves only to obscure truth and disgust the reader. This assessment by Clairol fits pretty well with what we said about the Greek context. Euclid's special style of geometry arose in a critical philosophical climate. Mathematicians had to anticipate attacks from philosophers who wanted to undermine the entire notion of geometrical reasoning. That the, the, the idea that geometry was a rigorous way of finding truth, that was being challenged. And that's why they would have to turn to such a pedantic mode of doing mathematics. Without this external pressure from philosophy, mathematicians may have been happy with a much more informal style, as they were in other cultures, in other societies, and as indeed they became again in the 17th century. Almost all mathematicians in the 17th century were very happy to take a freewheeling approach, for instance, when exploring a lot of stuff related to what we call calculus today, tangents and areas and stuff like that. For instance, uh, John Wallace, a leading mathematician, he did work on infinite series. It was based on daring, unrigorous extrapolations and generalizations, which he considered a very good method of investigation, which very often leads to the early discovery of the general rule. In fact, it need not any further demonstration, according to Wallace. Very unlike Euclid, or very unlike anything you find in Greek sources, it's explorative trial and error mathematics, kind of readiness to trust patterns and rules that you discover without the minutia of carefully writing out meticulous proofs of every little thing. That's the new spirit of the 17th century. When mathematicians chose this approach, they did not think of themselves as going against the Asian tradition. Instead, they imagined, and they were probably right, of course, that Greek mathematics too would have been developed that way, in an informal way. Euclid's style of mathematics is very powerful for certain foundational purposes. But of course, Euclid's proofs do not reflect how people initially discovered those things. But there must have been an exploratory side to Greek mathematics that is not revealed in surviving sources. Euclid's element is the end product of a long process of discovery and exploration. That process would not have been conducted in the pedantic and overly polished style of the finished elements. But it's necessary to start uh, with a much freer creative phase. Then the fruits of that exploratory process can be systematized and analyzed in the manner of Euclid. It was... uh, that's how it was interpreted by everybody in the 17th century. For instance, Torricelli expressed a, a view typical among mathematicians of that time. Here's what he said. For my part, I would not dare to assert that this geometry of indivisibles is a thoroughly new invention. Rather, I would have believed that the old geometers used this one method in the discovery of their most difficult theorems, although they would have produced another way more acceptable in their demonstrations, either for concealing the secret of the art, or lest any opportunity for contradiction be proffered to envious detractors. Many mathematicians agree with Torricelli in his account. The Greek historian Herodotus says about Persian political leaders that they deliberate while drunk and decide while sober. This is how you have to do mathematics as well. First you need to generate ideas. For this you have to be drunk, so to speak, that is to say, You have to try out wild ideas, uh, be uninhibited. Then 
you have to go over the same material again while sober. That is to say, you scrutinize everything critically, you discard, you correct all the mistakes that you made while drunk, and so on. The documentation that we have for Greek mathematics is only this sober part. There must have been a drunk part as well to Greek mathematics. The sober part is what gives mathematics its distinctive precision, its exactness, its reliability. But the sober part alone is, is sterile. It needs the fertile input of the daring ideas from the drunk part. Creative mathematics requires both. So it's interesting that it, this only matters if you want to create new mathematics. Then it is essential to realize that you need a drunk part. The working mathematician, the research mathematician, will absolutely agree with this way of thinking because they, to them, it is indeed essential to have these complementary uh, modes of mathematics. Many people in the 17th century, though, they wanted to use the example of mathematics to support various agendas without actually having any interest in discovering new mathematics. From that point of view, though, it's possible to ignore the drunk phase. If you are merely preserving and admiring past mathematics, you don't need creativity. You don't need new ideas. So you can stick entirely to the sober mode, the Euclidean mode, and you can maintain that that alone is the essence of mathematics. It matters which side you pick. If you want to use the authority and status of mathematics to legitimate other non-mathematical agendas. Indeed, it suited some people very well in the 17th century to emphasize the soberness of Euclid. They wanted mathematics to be like that because they had a po political, philosophical ideals that fit that image, the picture of soberness. Amir Alexander has his book Infinitesimal. He has some nice examples of this. Let's look at some of those. I mentioned Wallace as an example of a creative uh, mathematician who very much embraced the drunk style of mathematics. Wallace's arch enemy was Hobbes, who, by contrast, Hobbes appealed to the authority and rigor of Euclidean geometry as a model for reasoning as well as for political organization. He was a political conservative and appealed to the, the sort of cautiousness, so to speak, of Greek mathematics as a legitimating conservatism in political domains. As Amir Alexander says, Wallace and Hobbes both believed that mathematical order was the foundation of the social and political order, but beyond this common assumption, they could agree on practically nothing else. Hobbes advocated a strict and rigorous deductive mathematical method, which was his model for an absolutist, rigid and hierarchical state. Wallace advocated a modest, tolerant, consensus-driven mathematics, which was designed to encourage the same qualities in the body politic as a whole. Wallace's view of mathematics was very agreeable to the experimental scientists of the Royal Society. Experimentalism is a humbling pursuit, very different from the brilliance and dash of systematic philosophers like Descartes or Hobbes. Instead, experimental philosophy teaches men humility and acquaints them with their own errors. And that's precisely what the founders of the Royal Society appreciated about it. Experimentalism removes all haughtiness of mind and swelling imaginations, teaching instead men to work hard, to acknowledge their own failures, and to recognize the contributions of others. But mathematics doesn't fit so well with that picture. The Royal Society founders believed that mathematics was the ally and the tool of the dogmatic philosopher. 
Like these people like Descartes and Hobbes who have these grandiose systems. They think they have the answer to everything. So mathematics and systematic philosophy, dogmatic philosophy are alike in that regard. It's stuff that goes to people's heads and they become overconfident. Mathematics was the model for the elaborate systems of the rationalists and the pride of the mathematicians was the foundation of the pride of Descartes and Hobbes. And just as the dogmatism of those rationalists would lead to intolerance, to confrontation, or perhaps even civil war, so it was with, with mathematics. Mathematical results, after all, left no room for competing opinions, discussions or compromise of the kind cherished by the Royal Society. Mathematical results were produced in private, not in a public demonstration. They were produced by a tiny priesthood of professionals who spoke their own language, they used their own methods and accepted no input from laymen. Once introduced, mathematical results imposed themselves with the tyrannical power, demanding perfect assent and no opposition. It, of course, was precisely what Hobbes so admired about mathematics, but it was also what uh, Boyle and his fellows of the Royal Society feared. Mathematics, by its very nature, they believed, leads to claims of absolute truth, dogmatism, and the threat of tyranny. But let us note again, though, that this image of mathematics as a totalitarian absolutist, that is linked to the sober face of mathematics. By playing up the liberal, drunk way of doing mathematics, you change its political implications. And that is how things played out in England. Conservatives appealed to Euclid's rigor to justify hardline reactionary politics, while creative mathematicians saw the freedom and of creation of discovery in mathematics as suggesting that society as a whole should have a high tolerance for unconventional ideas, novel approaches. And the situation in Italy was quite analogous. The Jesuits were the intellectual leaders of the Catholic world in the 17th century. They ran hundreds of colleges across Europe, notable as much for their sheer educational quality as for their doctrinal role in the fight to defeat Protestantism. The Jesuit colleges placed great emphasis on Euclidean mathematics. To the Jesuits, Euclidean geometry represented a deeper ideological commitment. Geometry, which was rigorous and hierarchical, was to the Jesuits an ideal science. The mathematical sciences that followed it, astronomy, geography, perspective, music, were all derived from the truths of geometry. Consequently, the Jesuit mathematical curriculum demonstrated how absolute eternal truths shaped the world and govern it, thereby serving as a model for their religious doctrine and worldview. Euclidean geometry thus came to be associated with a particular form of social and political organization, which the Jesuits strive for, rigid, unchanging, hierarchical, and encompassing all aspects of life. For this reason, the Jesuits reacted with fury to the rise of infinitesimal methods, which is drunk mathematics, as it were. The, the mathematics of the infinitely small was everything that Euclidean geometry was not. Where geometry began with clear and universal principles, the new methods began with a vague, unreliable intuition that objects were made of a multitude of minuscule parts. Most devastatingly, whereas the truths of geometry were incontestable, the results of the new method of indivisibles were anything but were subject to controversy thereby undermining the Jesuit quest for a single, authorized and universally accepted truth. 
So, therefore, infinitesimal mathematics was dangerous to the Jesuits, not for intrinsic mathematical reasons, but because it was associated with the diversity of thought unchecked by authority. As one Jesuit leader declared, unless minds are contained within certain limits, their excursions into exotic and new doctrines will be infinite, which will lead to great confusion and perturbation to the Church. One God, one Bible, one Euclid, set in stone for all eternity. That's what these guys wanted, and that's why they liked Euclid. And that's why, in a fierce, decades-long campaign, the Jesuits worked relentlessly to discredit the doctrine of the infinitely small and deprive its adherents of standing and voice in the mathematical community. You have to stifle this dangerous new drunk mathematics in which people think for themselves and explore diverse perspectives, look for new truths, as if there were such a thing, right? So that's uh, my summary of the story from Amir Alexander's book, where you can read uh, more details about that. In any case, in, to summarize what we have said uh, today, mathematics had many possible connotations that could be exploited to various ends. It's like when someone becomes a celebrity, everybody wants them to endorse their product or sign their petition and so on. A sponsor post on their Instagram, it's a re- that's prime real estate. Mathematics had become a celebrity in the 17th century. Mathematics had status, for better or for worse, and everyone wanted a piece of it. Coke or Pepsi, PC or Mac, who would get the coveted endorsement of mathematics? Mathematics never sold out or picked a side, but it's illuminating to see the pitches that the PR departments of these various movements made on its behalf. And that is what I have tried to show today. Thank you.